Welcome back to The Word Encounter, episode 252. Today we'll be starting our venture into the book of Hebrews. Now, Hebrews is a very scholarly book, and uh, the author or authors are unknown. Some have suspected it was Paul, some you know, uh, Barnabas, some have suspected it was Apollos. Nobody really knows who wrote uh, Hebrews. And why was it written? Well, it was written in the late 8060s, somewhere between 8065 and 8069, somewhere in that vicinity. And at this time, uh, a lot of the Jewish Christians, or a lot of the Christians, not just Jewish Christians, but they were being persecuted by Nero in Rome. And with the Jewish Christians, they were also being somewhat persecuted by their own fellow Jews who, were, who did not convert into Christianity. And so there was a, a lot of pressure on the Jewish Christians to abandon the faith and go back to Judaism. And so this is the environment, this is the time period in which um, um, Hebrews were written, and this is the audience that it's written to. And so uh, Hebrews is, is, is trying to convey and convince the Jewish Christians to not abandon the faith, uh, the faith and giving them all kind of reasons why they should not abandon the faith. And so um, it, it states the case for Christ being superior to all things in the Old Testament, to the Mosaic law, to angels, to whatever it is that they may compare Christ against uh, as far as the Old Testament times are concerned and why they should not abandon the faith. So with that in mind, Let's get started into our venture into Hebrews. Again, like I said, Hebrews can be a very scholarly book, so I have to pay attention, and uh, I highly recommend do your own study, go through it slowly, you know, as the case is being laid for Christ. So we see here in chapter 1, verse 1, long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets uh, at different times and in different ways. And so we see here, it says long time ago, God spoke to our ancestors, so we can, you know, assume that the writer is of Jewish heritage. It says, uh, at different times and in different ways, God spoke to the people in the Old Testament days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the author saying, but in these days, you know, instead of the way he spoke to them then, he's speaking through prophets and, and other means, he's speaking uh, to us through Jesus. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So in Jesus, when we gaze upon Jesus, we see God. Okay, it says the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word and making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the case is being stated that nobody or nothing in the Old Testament is seated at the right hand of the Father God. It says in verse 5, uh, the son superior to angels. It says, for, uh, for to which of the angels did he, being God, ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, he makes his angels win, excuse me, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the sun, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. 
You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And so uh, the word is saying that in, in Jesus, we have a being that is beyond any companion, higher than anything else that God has created. See, and so again, the case is being stated to the Jewish Christians, don't abandon your faith because <laughs> there's nothing that's superior to what we have. It says in verse 10, and in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a, foot, a footstool? In verse 14, he says, they are not, um, are they not all ministering spirits? Now, this is referring to the angels. Are they not all ministering, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Angels are sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. Who are the ones that are going to inherit salvation? Us. Angels are sent out to serve us. That is their purpose. He never told an angel to sit at my right hand like he told Jesus. For angels are sent out to serve us. That's their purpose. Jesus, that's different. In chapter 2, it says, warning against neglect. For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. See, so he's saying, watch out what goes in your ear, for it might cause you to drift away from the faith. For if the message spoken uh, through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we ne neglect such a great salvation? In other words, what the writer is saying, um, for if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received was a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we try to ascribe to the law and stick to the law, we will never escape punishment because <laughs> Every, transgress, every transgression and every disobedience must receive just punishment. There is no mercy. There is no grace under the law. So he's saying, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of the Lord and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. See, so we're right, saying this salvation its beginning was spoken by Jesus, and it was confirmed to those of us who heard him. At the same time, let me back this up because I think I screwed that up. This salvation had its beginning when it was spoken of, spoken of by the Lord, when it's spoken of by God. This salvation was spoken of by God in the Old Testament. It says, but it was confirmed to us by those of us who heard Jesus. It says in verse four, at the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts uh, from the Holy Spirit according to his will. And so the writer is saying, we not only uh, heard the confirmation of this salvation from Jesus' mouth himself, 
But as he was walking the face of the earth, as he was preaching his gospel, his word was being confirmed by and testified to by God himself through signs and wonders and miracles and the distribution of gifts through the Holy Spirit, according to his will. So it wasn't just that we heard, we also witnessed Jesus and humanity. <clears throat> for he is not... Uh, for he has not subjected to angels to the world to come, but for he has not subjected to angels to the world to come that we have been talking about. He has not given the angels this mission, in other words. But someone else has testified. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Now, I believe this hymn is referring actually to mankind. I think there's a dual purpose here. It's referring to mankind and to Jesus, I believe. What is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time and crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. When Adam and Eve were created, everything in the world was subjected under their feet. They were to go and have dominion over the entire earth. And so everything in earth was subjected under their feet. But it says, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. I believe this is saying that as it is right now, we do not uh, have everything subjected to man. We don't see that right now. This is why I believe this is referring to man. But in verse 9, it says, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, we might taste death. He might taste death for everyone crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So I think this first part was referring to man. But here it says we haven't seen this in man, but essentially we've seen this in Jesus. And so, again, they're trying to convince the Jewish Christians the deity of Jesus. As we see this in Jesus. In verse 10, it says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The pioneer of their salvation, referring to Jesus, and, and, and that um, it was perfected through suffering. It says, For the one who sanctifies and to, uh, and to those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus and those of us who call on his name all have one father. And the word says that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us, his kinfolk, his brothers and sisters. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. So Jesus is, is talking about us. <clears throat> so Jesus saying, I will proclaim your name, God, to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Amongst the brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, I will sin, sing hymns to you. And then it says, you know, again, I will trust in him. Here I am with the children God you gave to me. <clears throat> Verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh, oh man. 
Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Wow. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, through that, so that through Jesus' death, he might, rest, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. Through Jesus' death, he would destroy the devil and free those who were held in slavery, referring to us, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by what? By the fear of death. And so through Jesus' death and through his resurrection, he proved his mastery over death so that we wouldn't have to fear death, proving that there was, in fact, life after death, that death is the necessary entry point to the next life. And so there's no reason to fear it. In verse 17, it says, therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. So Jesus had to come from his divinity and be like us in every way, flesh and blood, emotions, you know, afflictions, whatever, be, be like us in every way. Every means every, every human way. Why? So that he could become a merciful and a faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. He had to become like us to fully understand us, to fully know the things that we go through as humans. He had to become human. Therefore, we can have faith and we can trust that he knows exactly what it is to be us so that he could become a merciful and uh, faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. He could, because he's one of us, he could have mercy and grace towards us because he knows what it's like to be us. And it says, uh, to make atonement for the sins of the people. That was the uh, um, end of verse 17. Verse 18, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Now notice here, that the word equates temptation to suffering. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. And so when you are being tempted by sin, the word says that's a suffering. See, when you're being tempted, being tempted is not the sin. Succumbing to the temptation is the sin. Being tempted is not the sin. Being tempted is, in fact, suffering because it, 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 you know, it can take some, some gusto, if you will, to not fall to the temptation. And when you turn away from the temptation, the word is saying that is, in fact, suffering. In a way, you are denying yourself, right? Because if sin didn't have a component of pleasure, uh, excuse me, if temptation didn't have a component of pleasure, then it wouldn't be temptation. And so when you turn away from that temptation, you're turning yourself away from self-pleasure. That is, in fact, a form of suffering. In chapter 3, it says, Our apostle and high priest, uh, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, 
who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses, just as Moses uh, was in all God's household. And so the author is saying, look, Jesus was just as faithful as Moses was. You know, you put Moses on this pedestal, you know, you, you, you want to subscribe to Mo, uh, the Mosaic law and whatnot. But Jesus was just as faithful as Moses. Says in verse three, for Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over over his household. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's household, but Christ was faithful as a son over God's household. And we are that household. If we hold to our confession and the hope in which we boast. Warning against unbelief in verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, tried me and saw my works for 40 years. See, so he's referring back to when the, um, uh, the Israelites were led out of Egypt and they sinned and he was, they were wandering in the uh, wilderness for 40 years. It says, therefore, I was provoked to anger uh, with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, says the Lord, that they will not enter my rest. So we see here that entering God's rest is the prize. God swore in his anger because of what they had done, that they would not enter his rest. In verse 12, it says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you, <clears throat> so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. So here the author is saying, look, endurance is necessary. There are going to come temptations to turn away from the faith, but don't do it. It says encourage each other daily. Stay in the faith. Do not turn away. Do not have an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In verse 16, it says, uh, for, for who heard and rebelled? So he's asking a rhetorical question here. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? You see, he's saying that the ones, you know, the, 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 the system that you want to go back to with sacrifices and abiding by the law and all of that. So he's saying, well, who are the people that, that failed under that system? Who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all those who came out of Egypt under Moses? Verse 17, with whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were under, excuse me, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
And so what the author is saying, they were not able to enter God's rest. They were not able to achieve what they were trying to achieve through the law because of unbelief, because they didn't have faith. That's why they couldn't do it. He's saying, you want to go back to a system that is based on works, that is based on uh, obeying laws, do's and don'ts, and this, that, and the other. But nobody succeeded under that. Chapter 4, the promised rest. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. Verse 4, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter it because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day today. He, specif uh, he specified this speaking through David after such a long time. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, for in that day, when they went in and took over the promised land, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. He wouldn't, have, if, if they had achieved rest in that time under Joshua, then later on, God wouldn't have spoken about do not harden your hearts. <laughs> Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. And so the Jews would faithfully enter the Sabbath, uh, Sabbath and not work. They religiously did it. But I think here it's referring to the works mentality that they had with regard to trying to earn righteousness. And so he says, for the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, has rested from the mentality of trying to work his way into the kingdom. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Let us then make every effort to understand it is by faith that we are justified, not through works. And let's not fall into the same pattern of trying to work our way into uh, righteousness, into the kingdom of God, because we can't do it. We can't earn it. It says in verse 12, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge uh, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is able to do all of that. <laughs> it's living and it is effective and it is extremely sharp because it can penetrate your soul. It can penetrate your joints and the marrow. And it's able to judge your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. It can expose you naked. <laughs> 
It says in verse, matter of fact, it says it in verse 13. No creature is hidden from him. No person, no human being on the face of the earth is hidden from him. But it says this, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But all things are naked and exposed to God. Everything in our heart, everything in our mind, everything that we've done that we thought we may have done in secret, behind closed doors, in the closet, everything, all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You do nothing in secret. You get away with nothing. It says our great high priest in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That is key. We do not have a high priest. We do not have a Lord and Savior who is unable to sympathize with what we go through on this earth. He's able to. How? Because he came down and he joined us. He was amongst us. He was one of us. That's why he can sympathize. He's not just a God sitting up there, you know, perched atop heaven and and having no idea what it's like to be human. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. And the word says he was one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted. He was tempted in every way. I'm sure he was angry such that he may have wanted to kill somebody. You know, how do you think he may have felt about uh, 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 Judas when he, when he betrayed him? You know, how do you think he felt about, you know, uh, 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 the soldiers and other people that were spitting on him and slapping him and hitting him, what he may have wanted to do? It says he was tempted in every way. I'm sure there were very, very, very beautiful women at the time coming across his path. The word says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. The temptation is not the sin. Falling to the temptation is the sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Have boldness and courage when we approach the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We can come boldly before the throne of grace and petition the Lord for help in our time of need. We don't need to be bashful. We don't need to be shy. We don't need to be timid. We can boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need so that we can find mercy and find grace. Thank God. So we can see the author is is making a very compelling case to the Jewish Christians with why they shouldn't even entertain the thought of returning back uh, to Jewish ways and customs and abandoning the faith. And we'll continue on with uh, Hebrews 5 tomorrow. With that, we are done for today. And um, as this case in Hebrews is, is, is being stated for Christ, it's like we're in a court of law. And and an attorney is stating the case for Christ. And in my opinion, he's making a very compelling case for Christ. But there has to be a verdict after a case is over. 
And in this case, these are individual verdicts that can only be rendered by you. You can only render your own personal verdict. Do you believe who the Bible says that Jesus is? If you do, if you sincerely do, then that means you have a a sincere belief in your heart. Now just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and the Bible promises that you won't be put to shame and that you shall be saved. Everybody stay safe, be blessed, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and should he grace us with another day of life, we'll see you in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.